0: listeners, I'm Sam with Below the Radar, a Knowledge Democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Am Johal is joined by Ryan Takata. Ryan is an assistant professor of performance at SFU's School for the Contemporary Arts. Together, Am and Ryan discuss his performance residency at the Libby Leshgold Gallery and designing pedagogy for contemporary performance education. We hope you enjoyed the episode.
1: Hello, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again this week. We have a special guest uh, with us today, Ryan Takata. Welcome, Ryan.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
1: Ryan, I'm wondering if we can start with you introducing yourself.
2: I'm Ryan Takata. I'm a performance maker and currently Assistant Professor of uh, Theater and Performance at the School for the Contemporary Arts.
1: Well, uh, Ryan, I I thought maybe we could just start with, since I just saw a performance that you're involved with on Friday night at Emily Carr at the Libby Leshgold Gallery, and you were in residency um, there And I've seen you naked. I feel like I'm ready to interview you. I feel like I've seen a bit of you, a little bit of a sense. But if you could uh, maybe describe this residency at the Libby Leschgold Gallery and and the performance on Friday, which was lovely. Oh, thanks. By the way.
2: Thank you, thank you. Thanks for coming. Yeah, so let's see. In December of this past year, Vanessa Kwan, who just became the director of... Galleries and exhibition space and whatnot at, um, at Emily Carr asked if I would come in with, alongside uh, Justine Chambers, Justine A. Chambers, and Lucille to do mini residencies at the Libby Leshgold Gallery, as one as a way for Vanessa to figure out what could happen in that space to test new kinds of events and exhibition formats, um, and also just give us some space to try things out that maybe we've never tried out before. So, um, yeah, we, we were each in for about two weeks, and my uh, my two weeks just wrapped up yesterday. And so, yeah, when Vanessa was asking, like, you know, what what are some things that we could do here? There were so many bad ideas, like really bad ideas. Like um, one fantasy I had was just one live hose going off in the gallery for two weeks, just because it's such an upsetting thing to have a live hose on. It's like water waste and it's unruly and it's wet and you shouldn't have so much water inside of a gallery. Um, And they were like, no, uh, you know, I don't know. We don't know if that's going to be possible. Some other ideas were like uh, just a hot air balloon, such a tall space. There's so much volume in that space. Just to have a hot air balloon that would give people like a one inch ride and then fall back down. I thought it would be really fun. Um, A food court at one point. But we landed on installing this 400 square foot white high pile carpet in the gallery. And... The idea was that uh, over the two weeks, we would program a series of activations on this carpet that were really different in mode and form. One was, you know, a screening of Gregor Rocky's Nowhere um, from the Teen Apocalypse trilogy, which is one of my most favorite movies for no other reason than it was just one of my most favorite movies. And we ate a, like piles of cheesies on the carpet and they're free and it was a free movie night and people could wipe their hands. And so it's sort of this gross suburban basement kind of experience or image and then you know that would be done and what would remain were the cheesy stains on the white carpet so then in the between times of these events you would see these traces and impressions from stuff that happened you know prior um other things included like um some therapy dogs from the wellness center at emily Carr, where people can come and just sort of casually play and pet with dogs and it's so like it's always so fun to work with Animals because they they draw so much attention. They're so like it's not hard to understand what's going on because you're like oh it's it's a dog and I can pet it and it will bring me joy. It's my favorite kinds of performance. James Long, who you know is a a theater director here in Vancouver of theater replacement, wrestled his children for about an hour on the carpet which was really cool. I wasn't
1: able to go but I heard about it. It was legendary.
2: Really good. It was really it was so bizarre. There there are so many different performances where something private is not being exposed publicly, right like a personal story or an experience or something. But here the like, the public exposure of like an internal family dynamic not being like represented but presented raw it, through the frame of wrestling was so exciting because you saw all these sort of micro negotiations of like internal family dynamics even if i don't totally know what's going on you you can kind of see them play out in facial expressions and when something turns from like a tender moment into something a little bit more violent and aggressive that james would have to come and break open you know or silliness all within seconds it's so satisfying to to watch unfold that was a really fun and dynamic event i i don't think i've smiled so much in my entire life my cheeks were raw
1: and and in terms of the performance on on friday if you could speak a little bit to 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 that
2: yeah so then one of the other activations <laughs> was curtain speech and the idea was that it was an hour long content warning and so i've been writing this long content warning kind of for an imagined performance, but not even really, just all the things I I either have heard in content warnings before or things that would never be in content warnings. I've been writing that for the past couple of weeks, you know, at the bus stop or on the toilet or whatever. So I'm writing this very long list. And then we read that list and it was me and and Justine Chambers and Billy Marchinski. And as we read the list, we enacted certain items from that list on, on the carpet
1: yeah. It was a really uh, intense performance. There was lots of nudity. There was making out. It had like all of the the pieces, but it seemed very, um, for a Vancouver audience in terms of happening in a gallery, it seemed quite new to the scene here in a way. It certainly has historical precedence in terms of uh, performance art probably in the 70s and the 80s more so in, in Vancouver. Uh, But uh, yeah, I'm wondering what you were, um, the material that you were playing with the concept.
2: Yeah, and I want to hear more about that. I actually want to hear more about your experience. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I came to Vancouver two and a half years ago now, in the first year, and half of that was uh, during the early days of the pandemic. Um, So I feel like I'm learning a lot about Vancouver and what the live art scene looks like here, the theater scene, the dance scene. Meeting a bunch of people, seeing a bunch of work, and also just like digging into those histories. So I, I feel like, yeah, I'm very much in the getting to know you, learning kind of experience. A lot of my experience uh, of Vancouver takes place at the School for the Contemporary Arts in this uh, theater and performance program, and so I'm learning a lot from the students and from the the faculty that are there around what kind of work folk are interested in, what they what they see, what feels new, what feels uh, be a bit risky. But I think in terms of content warnings, uh, you know, working at an institution, it's a really particular context. It's an educational institution. And there's like a kind of uh, a huge emphasis on student safety and making sure that um, people are physically and psychologically and emotionally taken care of, which is good. And it's also a place where we are asking folk to experiment and to take risks and to take us into the unknown and to try things out that might feel a little dangerous or messy or complicated or difficult. And um, I find that to be one of the hardest bits in my job of trying to really foster that kind of attitude or spirit, um, that space for experimentation And at the same time, work within an institution that is actively trying to safeguard in advance. And so how that manifests in terms of content warnings is, uh, you know, especially around audience services. You know, I'll be working with students for a couple of semesters on whatever it is that they're working through and encouraging them and challenging them. And, you know, and then (laughs) when other folk come in and watch it for the first time there's a sense of shock of like oh ah, oh, wait oh there's no way that we can use flower there's no way that their their tits can be out there's no way that they can pee in the rug. there's no you know it's like this immediate kind of knee-jerk reaction towards things that i think are at surface level shocking and then come out the content the proposed content warnings and there have been some that are so wild like one more recently was fresh flowers as a content warning um and and I, it's those moments where that just causes me to pause and and think like wh- how did we get here? And what is what what are we trying to warn and alarm people about in in this work? And some of the things I, I totally understand, like flashing lights. It's you know, if you have epilepsy, that's a dangerous thing. Or if there are, I don't know, things that are now, if you're doing a peanut performance and you're spraying peanut oil everywhere and you're, like, deadly allergic to peanuts, I feel like that's a good thing to know about. But, w- for example, something like nudity in the context of contemporary art is really wild when you think about the long history of representations of the nude body in from antiquity to the contemporary. What is it to warn people about nudity and knowing that we're all very nude all the time? So it's... Uh, it starts to when you start to pull that thread a little bit. There, are, uh, we start to ask, like, oh, well, who, who are we warning, and what are we warning them about? Is it uh, in the name of family values? Is it the name of certain morals? The name of um, uh, conservative ideologies? Is it in the name? You know, um, and I don't. Yeah, I don't know.
1: Yeah, and, and I guess in the institutional context that you know academic freedom, artistic risk-taking, when it meets the kind of um, desires or demands on the institution for the wellness of students, you know, who draws the line of where that is? And it seems to be murky. So these flashpoints always emerge. And when it gets distorted through um, conservative policies, or you see, you know, happening in certain States in the US drag queens reading to children, you know, all of these, uh, it, it gets uh, into a potent mix where it, it, it actually places professors in an awkward position as well, because you don't know that line and it gets drawn arbitrarily all the time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's really tricky. And it's, you know, the especially the, I would say the archive of work that I'm bringing to the university, there's a lot of Bizarre work. I'm really drawn as an artist and as an educator to works that are hard to place. You know, things that aren't necessarily given, like, their value isn't because they were the most, you know, brilliant or groundbreaking or well tracked, you know, works of theater. They're often really bizarre and strange moments that that took place in old you know warehouses or uh, were barely documented maybe they only exist in gossip or something um and some of the work is explicitly you know sexual and and uh is challenging and difficult and i want to be able to incorporate that into my own pedagogy and i do i like I, i i I would li- I'd be a liar if I said it. there wasn't a little bit of anxiety every time that I gave a lecture or tried to give some context around why we're working with this particular form and who are some of the artists historically that have navigated that. But then I look at some of the bodies that were experimenting with those, and it's often women, and queer folk, and, and people of color. And, and that's exciting to me to say like, hey, here are some people that have been... Working through really complicated issues of identity of um, experiences of uh, oppression or violence in their lives through these new and emergent forms and let's learn from them and to sort of censor those in advance or give a kind of preamble of like hey you should all be be nervous before you watch this or look at this or be concerned uh, be anxious be careful before you experience this work it it feels strange versus letting the work produce those kinds of difficult thoughts and feelings and then unpack them with folk so it's a kind of a it feels kind of like a, a bit of a dance.
1: So Ryan before you became a professor here at um, SFU in the school for contemporary arts, how did you get into performance and in art making in the in the first place? Were you just doing this since you were a child or how did you fall upon it?
2: Well listen, before we move there, I wanted to hear more about your experience of of the curtain speech.
1: Uh, it was um I I think for me the the concept drew me in first of all. So before I even walked in the door, the fact that you were playing with that material I think is really timely and interesting. Also, you know, haven't seen that much performance art in Vancouver and that maybe I just wasn't going to the, the right place. So it was great to see that in the gallery at uh, Emily Carr. And then, of course, I knew two of the three of you already. So that like that was also like a sense of warmth coming into the space. And then in terms of the actual, like it was intimate. I trusted you already coming in and in the parts that would make an audience perhaps, um, you know, Wiggle in their seats or something like this, I was drawn into why you were doing the work, and in that sense, I was like you could I could tell you were enjoying performing it and and that gave me a sense of joy like even the moments that were maybe intentionally meant to draw or to make an audience uncomfortable to me it was uh, like I wanted to go with wherever you were going, and I liked that it was um Poking at uh, little bears and little things that uh, I think are really important in terms of the the risk taking that art uh, requires. But you know, somebody else who was there as well is somebody who's sitting with us right now. I'm going to bring her into the conversation to see what she might have to it. Hello. Sam, hello. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, what was your experience? You were there. What was your experience?
0: Hi there, this is Sam just jumping in here. I work here at SFU's City Office of Community Engagement as the program assistant and I'm also an interdisciplinary performance artist here in Vancouver. Yeah, I think it was really exciting for me to see this outside of school. And I mean, I've been in a rehearsal space with you <laughs> before so a lot of this I was like, oh yeah, Ryan would do that. <laughs> but yeah, I, I agree. It was really fun, I think, was was my main takeaway of just that I was enjoying it. I think <laughs> it was really... Because there is a little bit of that shock value that I think you're playing intentionally into, which I think in school, sometimes we're trying to not do that because then it's like, oh, that's cheap. But then also makes you think about the content warnings in a way as well of like producing this shock as well. I am still thinking about the, the butt stains on the carpet. That was really fun.
2: Can you explain that? For, can you explain <laughs> that for our listeners?
0: Yeah, for for the listeners at home, in case you missed it, it was Ryan. You were yeah, you were completely naked at that point, and um, you had chocolate pudding. It was chocolate pudding, sort of between your butt cheeks, and scooting like a like a dog on the carpet. <laughs> it reminded me. I saw this performance in Germany this summer by um, uh, Florentina Holtzinger, and um, there was a moment where like four dancers like pooped on on stage but it, was, it wasn't like poop but it was like something that it was coming out of their butt and so I think about that a lot of like the <laughs> process of and the practice the intentional practice of getting something up your butt for a performance as well that's my review thanks Sam thanks Sam
1: I was going to say also um, in as it increasingly added to the dimension particularly the the scooting part is that when you see Performers um, take the work there. It feels liberatory for an audience because it's like we're all constrained and living within institutional parts. So when you see that being done, it feels like this thing is uh, lifted. It's it's almost like a sigh of relief because it feels like you're given permission to do something similar. And and I think that art making in that in that zone does that for an audience. Yeah,
2: and I feel I like I feel like. You know, the work that I'm typically drawn to is really boring in, in terms of what I make. Like, I am boring in the sense that I'm interested in long periods of time. I'm interested in giving folk a lot of space and time for associations to come up, to sit with stillness, to sit with really, like, tight images that are, like, you know obsessed over and, like, perfectly executed. And I think that's something I've been craving as an artist At least within during this residency, um, was the permission to be a little nasty, and to be a little perverted, and to and to be juvenile, and to get into these kinds of acts that are that are silly and ridiculous, and pair those with things that you know and, and shape them in such a way that maybe they can be held as more heightened aesthetic experiences or something but to to have that twinning I think was really necessary for me partly coming out of the pandemic partly being here in Vancouver where everyone is so nice and everything is so nice and careful um that and I really repressed and really repressed maybe I don't know I, I can't make that judgment yet I mean I don't know but I, that's what I've heard that just to just to create these kinds of openings yeah this this idea of a uh, giving permission I feel like I need to do that. With myself. I feel like I need to do that with my students. I feel like I need to do that with my colleagues. And, uh, and I think that's one of the sort of uh, impulses I have as a, like a queer person in the world is just to make experiences and moments and environments just a little more queer or wild or nasty or perverted without only living in that terrain. Like collapsing that back into something much more serious, like this podcast maybe, you know, uh, a a discursive conversation or God knows what. But I I like giving myself that permission to, yeah, to to carve out these more ridiculous spaces for things to happen.
1: So now I'm going to come back to this question of how did you get into making art and performance? Uh, were you doing it since you were a kid, I assume? No, no, not at all.
2: I mean, in my like, I grew up in Fresno, California, um, which is like a Central Valley, California farming city. Um, and actually, I grew up in a suburb of that place called Clovis, California, which is known for its rodeo days and other white cowboy things, you know. Kind of a really terrifying place to grow up, but I would play a lot on the couch with like my X Men action figures. Cause I was a little bit of a dork and kind of lonely, I'm sure. <laughs> but you like you you have to find ways of playing. Like uh, my garbage days were my favorite. Like going when people would dump all their garbage onto the street and then you you could pull out different toys and stuff like toys being like a bumper or like you know a refrigerator door or something and that became like a shield and your sword you know like uh those kinds of performances i was doing when i was little and then high school i got dragged into theater on accident and my drama teacher was really he was really something I, mean, I think he was a little drunk all the time. Like he was driving around in his car in the parking lot, sort of drinking and smoking and he'd come in like red face, but he was so passionate and so like lovely. And he was really taken by me for some reason. And then ended up giving me my own show called the Ryan Takata show, where I was able to direct a bunch of bits and then put it on as like a dinner theater kind of thing. And I remember uh, our principal at the time, he like rolled in on his wheelchair and was like, you know, Ryan. Like, I feel like I could get fired for a lot of the things that just took place here, because I really had all the freedom to to kind of stage whatever. Like, there was um, in the Ryan Takata show, there was um, the gay fashion designer for the Pope who came in and was <laughs> describing uh, the next season as like a kind of talk show format and just some other really stupid, poor. 16 year old thoughts playing out on stage for a bunch of people but I would say that yeah, then I ended up um, I didn't know what to do with my life I like I thought maybe I could be an actor so I went to Fresno State in California this is a state school system I got a yeah, I got a scholarship to do acting there and it was horrible um, it was very boring <laughs> <laughs> it was very boring to to take the acting classes and whatnot, and I was sta- I was cast as like this boy in a Noel Coward play called Hay Fever, which why they were doing Noel Coward Hay Fever in like the early twenty first century in Fresno, California made just no sense to me whatsoever. But I was in it and I was wearing a top hat, you know, and eating pudding, and I was like, I don't. Where the, 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 the pudding came pudding from. probably came back from. <laughs> Yeah, it was tapioca pudding and I was supposed to like gross people out. I don't know. But anyways, the review from that in like the school newspaper was that I had played the character too gay. And this was like sort of circulated, um, you know, why was Ryan camping up this character? And I, I really wasn't. It wasn't, that wasn't what well, I didn't think I was. That wasn't my intention. And then I had to go around to classrooms and talk to people about it and so forth. And, you know, what does it mean to be too gay and X, Y, and Z? And I was like, I need to get out of this place. And at the same time, I was doing my own things. I didn't even know how to history or a legacy. I was just being weird. Like I, I, uh, uh, there was this tea shop in Fresno that I brought a mirror out to and I stood in front of it for 24 hours with a sign over it that said, what am I? It's like so bad. It's so cheesy, but like it just this kind of like existential experiment I was having with myself. And I, I wrote a play, um, just for shopping carts, for example. Um, so it was like an object-based kind of performance. Um, but I thought, oh, wouldn't it be lovely if all the shopping carts that you saw sort of strewn about in parking lots and in canals and wherever um, had a story tied to them. So it was this sort of play for and about uh, right. shopping carts. Eventually, I was on this <laughs> this children's theater tour, and the director, she was so wonderful. She was like, listen, you need to get out of here. And I was like, Okay. I, like, where should I come? And she was like, you should think about this performance program at the School for the Art Institute of Chicago. Um, it feels like it's a place that would really support some of the ideas and, and work that you're making. And I didn't even think I was making work. I was just doing stuff. And then... um yeah, I got in, and uh, I got a, a scholarship for my portfolio, which also included like uh, window dressings at this vintage store that I was working at. That were like were not; <laughs> they were like more like installations than they were like window dressings. Um, everything kind of changed from there. I like I started to to learn a lot more about the histories of experimental performance and theater and, and performance art and live art and all the things that sort of fall under that banner and met a bunch of rad people and yeah it, it changed my life it changed the way that I, I think about the everyday it changed it changed the way i think about art and what performance is and can be and i mean you name it so yeah i would say those
1: are some beginnings and uh, you later on did your phd at stanford, stanford. yeah yeah so uh, what, what was the subject of your work here so the dissertation was on an alternative
2: art space in San Francisco called Lama Mel. In Vancouver, it was associated with Western Front, sort of within that network of alternative art spaces. And from they were operated from the 70s to the 90s. And um, in San Francisco was a place to go and see these emergent forms. You know, and it's funny, we talk about performance art. And um, at that time, that wasn't really a, a term to use. That's it's more of a historical term that we've come to. It's kind of sad sometimes because it sort of flattens out a lot of specificity of how these things sort of emerged in various contexts, from you know uh, music venues or galleries or uh, warehouses or even off the stage, et cetera, et cetera. But it was a time when, it, yeah, there really wasn't a, a term like that. And so it was a space where people, if you can put your mind into it, were just really experimenting with different uses of time and space and body and text and object and so forth. And the Lama Mel was also an an early venue for video art, which has a lot of uh, performance dimensions in it. And other just modes of distributing like uh, these experimental kinds of forms. And so, anyways, they uh, were operative until the '90s, and then they um, closed down and had to get rid of their archive. And there was this big drama around what to do with all of the stuff that they had collected. And uh, a portion of it ended up at Stanford, and another portion ended up at the Berkeley Art Museum. And so, the dissertation itself was was trying to think through this archive of performance and the relationship between performance and archives, and also. uh, historicize Lama Mella a little bit and, and thinking about how performance might be able to be distributed beyond this framing of, of the live event. So performance in print or performance on video or recorded performances and all the different kinds of um, experiments with that.
1: Uh, it's super interesting, just with the connection to Western Front and look at some of the older um, organizations like Video In Video Out that goes out to the early '70s, and as well, you know, grappling with their own systems of archives and digitizing them and historicizing them um, as well. I'm wondering now, you know, coming into SFU into a, a a theater and performance program where a number of you are new faculty in the area, how you're thinking through pedagogically you know, where to take the the school. You walk into a history immediately when you walk into a school, but you're also, a number of you are quite new. You've been on faculty three or four years. I'm thinking about Erica Latta, who's been a guest on our show. James Long is new to to faculty. And so it must be a really um, exciting time to be in the, in the program and to think anew what theater and performance can be in this time, and particularly with the, the histories that SFU has.
2: Yeah. It's a, it's a really exciting time. I, you know, when I, let me, let me say this is that I was looking for the dream job was to teach performance in an art school context. And that's really different than teaching, let's say theater or drama or acting within a theater program, maybe housed within the humanities. And partly that was based on my experience of being at the school for the art Institute of Chicago and being so just taken back by what the faculty in that performance program were teaching and how they were teaching and how it was connecting to my experiences of taking classes in, in film and sound and fiber arts and all the other kinds of really rich programs with, that you get within an art school. And I was like, oh, that's that's where I'd like to teach. That's where I'd like to yeah try out different forms of studio practice and, and so forth and so when this position opened up it was really exciting because it's quite rare to see an opening for uh, a performance position a tenure track professorship w- for performance within an art school and so i applied and and when i got here it was um you know the top of the pandemic which so is a very strange time you know the schools were shut down all the teaching went online. So one, it was about trying to figure out how to continue to teach performance practice via Zoom. At the same time, the faculty that were there, Stephen Hill um, and Cole Lewis, who brought us in, left for a couple of different reasons. And so there it was just a, a sort of clearing of this new home, and uh, which was a bit terrifying to have to, to orient myself to a new institution and to a new city and to new faculty and in a new student body that maybe there were expectations of what uh, their degree was supposed to be, what kind of education they were supposed to be getting. And I was certainly brought in as somebody who was going to teach from, you know, my field of scholarly expertise and artistic practice. And so I could teach that, but I, you know, I couldn't, and I, and I won't teach other kinds of acting forms, for example, It's just not, it's not, I'd be the worst person to to teach that. And so it, it took us some time to have to think through, like, well, what what do we do? We know that we're gonna have to fill some new positions. We know that we're gonna have to um, readdress the, the curriculum now that all the old faculty are gone. And we spent the past couple of years doing a bit of review and redesign of the curriculum. Um, right now, all those program modifications are sitting with the ministry they're being reviewed, and hopefully this will go through um, at the top of um, June. So we have a whole new program coming in We've, and we spent yeah a lot of a lot of time thinking through structures and course containers that could open us up to a, a, a number of modes of performance of contemporary performance that's quite exciting. It's like, it's it's a pretty rare opportunity and there's a lot of support from the school for the contemporary arts and faculty. And I think the students are slowly getting on board with where we might be taking them, but there are a lot of unknowns. And I I really, I I like that space. Like I rarely teach the same thing twice. I really love thinking of the classroom as performance um, and thinking of uh, these new events that we might be able to create where we confront a set of ideas or art practices or techniques or modes together kind of for the first time, you know, like I I just invented this course around persona making where we had had students invent their own personas and craft their own personas, art personas um, over the course of a semester. And I'd never taught that before. And what does that look like in terms of a studio? How do you test that out? How do you grade that? Uh, What are the artists that you bring in to kind of shape the context for that work? And um, you know, what, what might that give students uh, in terms of uh, a sense of, give them in, in terms of a sense of, you know, how they might be able to use some of this, this, these tools or practices in their own work moving forward? What What might it inspire and so forth? And so I like giving us a space for that kind of invention and that we can continually update the program as the years roll on and we're responding to the field and to contemporary culture and the particular students that are in our program and so forth. That's quite exciting, but I, I would let me say this is that the the big thrust is that we're we're really interested in performance makers versus training people as actors or as directors or as dramaturgs within any particular set of uh, skill sets or a particular discipline. And part of that is to to give students enough agency to see themselves as artists. And to say like the things I'm trying out are specific to me and to the way that I'm kind of experiencing the world. And I I also can invent methods and methodologies and I can articulate them and I can test them out and I can come up with forms of assessment for them to say like, oh, here's what uh, good or bad might be for me versus that coming from the outside. And in doing so, learn to professionalize from within that they can start to sort of profess the things that they really care about versus having this abstract sense that there is like a way to leave the school and then survive because there's just not. There's many ways Um, and a lot of ways that we've all discovered in our own wayward forms. Like, I don't know if you exactly planned and plotted your way to this exact moment. Absolutely not.
1: <laughs> I was a community organizer, and I guess I just learned how to do... I think of this as community organizing in a new way. And interestingly, I was always kind of at the intersection of the political, and, and art was a way of getting away from the intensity of the political. And so it was something that I'd always could of been involved with communities or set on boards and this type of thing. But... Um, inhabiting this position was that there didn't need to be like a false wall between these things. It could actually like come together and you could just totally be yourself. And uh, so in in some sense, I just did things I was interested in and then happened upon here where there was enough agency and autonomy to kind of create a kind of your own work <laughs> in the way that you want to. Yeah, um, yeah.
2: and and find it and discover it, yeah. you know, and fill it out. And I feel like that's going to be a life time experience for all of us in a lot of ways or at least it is for me and so to really honor that and not shy away from that I think takes a lot of takes a big investment in curiosity just to get folk really curious about things that maybe they don't know or haven't experienced yet and then also just a a kind of confidence in experiencing the unknown and the new um, and that it's okay not to know and uh, it's okay not to have a, a complete understanding of how things are or what they are. Um, but to be able to sit with things long enough to go like, oh, this is uh, exciting or this is going to feed me or this is uh, an interesting set of ideas that I'm going to pursue for a little bit and 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 stay with for a while and see what might come up. Yeah, trying to cultivate that sense of, of the unknown, which is tricky because you're also competing with certain demands of... Job markets and expectations of what to do with, you know, a BFA or a degree that oh, I go out and get a job and, um, you know, financial insecurity, all of it. And big questions of like, what am I going to do with my life and so forth? And it's like all of that's very much operative. So I'm trying to attend to that as well, but also maintain the sense of, hey, it's going to, I want you to feel smart enough and creative enough and bold enough to like, discover that down the line and then invite other people into that world to become world makers Um, not just for yourself but for your community of friends and artists and activists and you name it so trying to model yeah trying to model a program that will produce that uh, within the students so that they can produce that for themselves and others
1: i was going to ask you about artists and performers that you're inspired or influenced by who are working um currently whether they're professors or peers or others but wondering who you think is doing yeah interesting work that you're particularly attuned to or interested in
2: oh my gosh i mean so many people i i uh, the the people that come to mind um include uh, miguel gutierrez uh la chica boom adam linder uh, Six hundred highwaymen. Every house has a door. Breadface blog. You know, like I'll, let me throw that in. It's like this this person who anonymously was uh, smashing her face into bread on on Instagram and TikTok. For, you know, for a long time and has hundreds of thousands of followers and has made a really wonderful career for her, herself. Um, just pressing her face into bread. <laughs> okay. uh, and Rita, happy, yeah. uh Julie Tolentino and older folk too that are still making work like Lois Weaver and Curious and Force Entertainment and I see a lot of work from dance to to drag to performance art to to dare say theater
1: yeah there's like
2: there's a bunch of folk that I'm inspired by yeah
1: I was going to ask you about you know one of the challenges of coming into a faculty position, you know, you can generate a lot of energy and ideas being in a in a pedagogical space, being around other colleagues. But also, you know, I find when I teach, I learn a lot from students as well. Uh, but this uh, challenge of having the time to make your own work. And I'm wondering how that has been for you in terms of while you've been a new faculty member arriving into a new country, new city, all those things. And at the same time, being able to produce your own and and make your own work and having the time for it, yeah, it's hard.
2: It's a it's like a work life balance thing because I also have I'm am in a relationship with you know my my partner Kyle Demedia who I love and we have a dog named Jasper he's a miniature wiener dog and I have friends you know and family and. I'm, I guess I should have hobbies or like a personal life or something, you know, but i trying to manage all of that is a little tricky. And I, I think the, um, again, this is why I was really interested in, in teaching within an art school context was so that I didn't, I didn't feel like I had to like separate my teaching from uh, my practice uh, and or my scholarly work from my teaching, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I feel like, for me, the the long game is to really look at all of that as a singular project and to not feel like I'm necessarily separating out those spaces. And I, I appreciate it when things feel a little blurry, like when it feels like the classroom context is becoming kind of like a performance of an event, or if there's something kind of pedagogical and What I'm doing alongside a a project, like where I'm able to teach a workshop or, or give a talk or something, like when those things sort of start to feel like they're all somehow operative and that the context might be shifting a little bit, that feels really great. But just in terms of time management, you know, we get a, we get a bit of a research summer. It's is so great about teaching in Canada. Like we end in April and start in September. So that's like a pretty good chunk of time. We've been bogged down with a lot of administrative work just because we're a small faculty. And so we have to um, do a lot of admin ourselves. So I've been the area coordinator for our program for the past couple of years and ushering in a lot of these program changes and bringing on new faculty and doing job searches and et cetera, et cetera. But I think... You know, I, so I also have a performance company in San Francisco called For You that has been really wonderful in allowing me to like work from Vancouver, even though a lot of our work is sort of based in the Bay practically speaking we do a lot of zoom meetings and I, you know a lot of prep in advance be that like meeting with community members or um, doing some writing or you know whatever we can do before we get together in a studio and then pop over to the bay and do these sort of residencies and work really fast and quick and and, and throw things up and working within the parameters and and the conditions that I have available, you know. So it's I, I have two weeks at the Libby, and we'll do two, two weeks of work there, and it'll it'll look just like this, and take those into consideration in terms of how the work emerges. Of course, I would love more time just to make my own performances, and the, the, but I feel like I have a lot of time to do that.
1: I don't know. We we all have to do that kind of juggling. What uh, do you have any work that you're developing right now that you wanted to talk about? With for you, you
2: know, we spent the past couple of years. Uh, doing this project called Artists and Elders that started right at the top of the pandemic. We had this grant to work with folk who have dementia and their care partners. This is before the shelter-in-place ordinances and so forth. Well, let me back up. So uh, the, the company for you is, uh, it's me and my collaborator, Erica Chongshak, who's a choreographer and a director, and Rowena Ritchie, who's a, a dancer and a brain health researcher. And we make, we, we founded this group in 2015. And we make performances as gifts. And we think about the work as living somewhere between performance and social practice. And so the way that we work is that we get to know people for a long period of time, and then we make aesthetic experiences that reflect that, our getting to know them. So in other worlds, it might be understood as like ethnography or something, or creative ethnography, but we date people, take a bunch of notes, and then go back to the studio and craft experiences that are largely just for them, which is complicated in terms of questions of audience. Because the, the impulse is often like, you know, fill all of the seats. If this is a good performance, then what thousands and thousands of people have come to see it and we've made all of this money. But the way that we work, like our, we've shifted our, um, yeah, our sense of audience impact around depth of engagement with the individuals that we're working with. And how do we measure success based off of that? So okay, top of the pandemic, folk with dementia, their care partners, and we were going to think about caregiver burden and to create experiences that might help ease or relieve a bit of caregiver burden from from folk that are taking care of their their loved ones. But then we couldn't we couldn't go into uh, nursing homes and hospitals and so forth because of the ordinances. So then we just took that money and we started to organize these Pairings, or these couplings of artists and elders in the broadest sense of both of those words, just to have a little bit of exchange virtually when people were sort of working over Zoom and so forth. And we paired like a hundred people to to do that kind of work early on. And then did that work in Chicago and at the Court Theater in, in Chicago with Hyde Park Arts Center, and then also at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. More recently, we worked with an elder for about a year. But now, on, on the end of it, we're, we're doing a project called The Welcoming, which is working with this befriending organization, an, uh, an elder befriending organization called LBFE, Little Brothers Friends for the Elderly, um, in San Francisco, and they work with people who are clinically diagnosed as being as uh, living with loneliness. And being socially isolated, meaning that they don't get more than two social visits a month. And that includes social workers and so forth. So folk that are like really, really um, isolated, even before the pandemic for a number of reasons. Working with a group of elders that they serve with our artists and and thinking about how about how they welcome us into their own stories and imaginations and homes and so forth. Yeah, how can we listen for the kinds of welcomings from folk who are historically very isolated? Maybe have a lot to say around what the impact of hospitality might be, or a greeting, or um, a warm hello. So working with a group of artists that are sort of our delegate artists to go out and work with those elders, and then shaping that into a performance exhibition. So we have another R&D, work in progress kind of thing this June, partly at the Headland Center for the Arts, and then the other venue to sort of showcase this sort of performance exhibition is uh, TBD at the moment. Nice. Yeah.
1: You know, with Below the Radar, it's a great public opportunity to shit-talk your colleagues if you want to. I was wondering if you had anything you wanted to share or say to Eric Alata and James Long. Wow. A joust, a joust, <laughs> a public joust, prodding. I, the
2: shit talk my callings. Wow. No, I, okay. Uh, let me say this. I have to say that I feel really blessed being able to work with the two of them. And I'm, uh, it's, uh, James is great. You know, he came in, I mean, it was just Eric and I trying to keep an, an, a, an area together, like a department together, which is really hard. And James has come in and within his first year, just like to help been so helpful. And taking out administrative things and thinking with us and um, contributing to the area and helping fantasize with us. And we have young Julie coming from Harvard next year who has a practice in augmented reality and performance and virtual performance and things that, I, you know, I'm so low-tech, low-fi, like I, I'm spreading pudding in my ass, you know, and dragging on a carpet that hasn't like, I'm, there's not like an application for that. So I, I'm really excited for her to come in and, and help us think through how we might prep students um, to engage in new technologies and digital technologies and their performance. But no, I don't know if I have any chastity things. I mean, I'm sure if we had some drinks, like I probably could say a few things. But Ryan, is there anything you'd like to add? No, I don't know if there's anything. I would just say that Vancouver is really exciting. It's an exciting place right now, for, I think, for performance. I think in terms of the artists that are here that are making live art and live performance the venues that are, that are supporting that kind of work. There's, um, you know, from Grunt Gallery to Western Front to the Dance Center to uh, the Colch and Fire Hall. And it, it's, it, I feel like it's a really exciting time to be here and thinking through my own performance practice, but also what does contemporary performance pedagogy look like? How might that be tied into some of the exciting activity and artists that are working here beyond the institution? And how, regardless of what discipline we think we might be in, how we all might be able to get together more and think across some of yeah, some of our practices and ideas right now. And I say that because I feel like historically the West Coast has been left out of the more like exciting uh, conversations around what is contemporary art and uh, what is at least within the performance worlds. Um, You know, people look to Berlin or London and New York and maybe LA now for a little bit, but yeah, there's something about Northern California and all the way up to the Pacific Northwest. It's been, it's an interesting, it's a lot of really exciting dynamic work that I, I feel really happy to be here now meeting all these folk and being with young artists like sam and seeing like what happens with her career you know or being with um and and thinking about how our program might be able to connect in our social classes that we're going to be offering how that might shape out over the years and what kind of work might come from that and what what kind of students might be exposed to that and what they might be sitting next to you doing this very same kind of job like down the line it's it's it feels like such an exciting moment so i just i think i would just add that i'm really
1: um yeah i'm excited to be here Thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar, Ryan.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Am, and Thank you, Sam. Yeah. Thank you, Sam.
0: <laughs> Below the Radar is a Knowledge Democracy podcast created by SFU's City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our episode with Ryan Takata. Check the resources in our show notes to learn more about some of the performances and artists mentioned in the episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast listening app of choice and we'll catch you next time on Below the Radar.